This is an ABC podcast. This episode of Earshot talks in detail about alcohol abuse. So go gently if this might be triggering for you. All right. I'll just get you to start by introducing yourself and maybe just take me back to when it all began. So I'm Claire. Um, When did it all begin? It all began when I realised that my use of alcohol was becoming, as they say, unmanageable. I felt really lonely and alcohol was my friend. Alcohol is the most available, most widely consumed and most widely misused recreational drug. I was drinking to pass out. Yeah, it became really annihilistic. The line between healthy drinking and alcohol abuse is blurry and is often crossed before anyone realises. I don't really know what she got up to. I know that I need help, but I don't know how to get it. Hello, I'm Miyuki Okiranta. This is Earshot. And in this episode of our series about following, a story about following the pull of addiction and of trying to follow someone you love out of it. Have the serenity to accept the things that you cannot change and the courage to change the things that you can and the wisdom to know the difference. It's very true. I really was trying, but I just kept tripping up. I couldn't make it stick. This is Follow Me Out of Oblivion, Claire's story, and the producer is Kirsty Melville. Just a warning that this episode of Earshot talks in detail about alcohol abuse. And so think carefully before listening if this might be triggering for you. Who is Claire? (laughs) Claire is a strong, independent woman. I like to be able to say that. That's something that I am. I am in my 40s. I live with my youngest daughter. I have two kids that are beautiful, strong women themselves. I have one in university and one in high school. We live near the river and near the sea. And I like to go for walks on the beach. (laughs) Um, I am, okay, so my personality, I really am easygoing. You know, some people say I'm easygoing and they're not. I am. (laughs) Are you drinking like a night is young? Yeah, why are you drinking like a night is young? It wasn't until I hit my 40s that I started seeing red flags in the way some people I loved consumed alcohol. It began as small things. Long forgotten mugs of wine found in weird places, a whiff of alcohol at school pickup, a commitment to drinking that seemed at odds with this stage of our lives. I've always used drugs and alcohol like my whole adult life, but not in the sense that I thought was problematic. But I did also use drugs and alcohol when I wasn't feeling good. That started to become something that I could turn to if things weren't going great. And we've all been there, right? Hanging for a drink, a beer, a glass of wine, to take the edge off a bad day. Catching up for a drink is pretty much our default setting. It can be hard to see, to feel the slide. 
after my second child was born, we bought a house up in the hills and I didn't want to live up in the hills. Our first house we bought was close to the city and I knew all the school mums and I had a, a really great job in that neighbourhood and we moved way up into the hills and I was at home with a baby. Going back to being a stay-at-home mum was quite hard for me. I didn't like that. I think that was really where things started to become problematic for me. I started to have symptoms of anxiety and panic. I would play with the little one all day and then I would have a beer. Then I would have one while I was cooking dinner and then I would have one while I was eating dinner and that was all. But I was starting to do that every single day and my husband really noticed it and he didn't like it. Then I stopped drinking for like a year and a half, I think. And then we had a big family Christmas and um, I was like, well, it's Christmas, I'll have a drink. Then it was New Year's and I drank on New Year's. And then I think by March, I was drinking every day again. And I realised that what was happening was that my marriage wasn't working out and I didn't have a very close relationship with my husband. I felt really lonely and alcohol was my friend. Once the kids would go to bed, he was shut off to me and so I would drink every single night. Okay, my name's John and Claire's my daughter. We have a close relationship. You know, we bring our children up to be independent and make their own decisions and that includes choosing the right or wrong partner. John could see the fractures in Claire's marriage and he was worried. And you can't just turn around and say, well, you should leave. This is not good for you. That's not your role. And Claire loved him and her love kept her getting hurt time and time again. It didn't surprise me when, as a way of coping, she started drinking. As things broke down further in our marriage, I turned to it more. So again, it became a problem. Again, I stopped. And then things got worse and worse and worse, and I started again. Were you noticing any changes in Claire? Were there warning signs that you were seeing? (sighs) To start off with, she established a studio where she would do painting. And I made an easel for her. But at some stage, I started to notice that there were an accumulation of bottles out there, as well as escaping the house to do painting. She was escaping the house to drink. Claire was spiralling, and so was her marriage. As they say, it's complicated. There were many reasons on both sides, but a big one was her drinking. One night after an argument with her husband, she left the house to drink. And when she got home the next morning... He had already started packing my bags and he said, that's it, I'm done. And I didn't see that coming. Eventually moving out of the house and cleaning up all of her stuff, it was amazing the amount of empty bottles that were stashed away. When you were finding those bottles, did you say anything to her? What do you say? You say... You don't need to be doing this. I can help you. Only I couldn't. 
Claire moved into a granny flat at the back of her mum's house. The kids stayed in the family home and Claire and her ex-husband spent week about back there with them. As soon as I was alone, the sadness would start to kick in and just a huge sense of overwhelm, like the grief. So I would drink because it stopped that. And I, I got more and more involved at the point where you know, her daughter phoned me up and said, Mum's on the floor, I can't get her up. And I went over and we had to take her to hospital. And when they told me what the alcohol content of her blood was, it was just way off the scale and I didn't realise until that point that she was drinking to a really bad state. And so, yeah, bit by bit I became more and more involved in the consequences of, of her alcoholism. That was like the, the beginning of the end. And then another blow. Her mum sold her house. Claire had to move out of the granny flat. She was homeless. Her only option was to move in with her dad. And then it was even more intense because the first thing she drank every drop of alcohol there was in the house. And, but the hardest part for me was she would go off and I wouldn't know where she was, who she was with. She'd come back and she didn't know where her phone was or her bag was. A couple of times I went over to the park and found them just on the ground where she had dropped them at some stage and was in no state to know what had happened to them. I made it clear that no matter what time of the night, she could always call me and I would go and get her, and, and I did. Sometimes she wasn't all right. She'd been in a fight or physically damaged by whoever she was with. And what kind of conversations would you have with her after those experiences? I learned very early on that you're not talking to the person, you're talking to the alcohol. There's not much point in getting angry because the next day it's all gone. I've been that friend, not to Claire, but to others. The one answering late night, rambling phone calls. The one picking a friend up off the floor, questioning the bruises, the injuries seeing my friends in their rawest moments. And I tried, we all tried, to convince them they needed help, shouted, pleaded, reasoned, cried, and, I'm not proud to say, eventually walked away. It's gross. I would get like one of those big one and a half litre bottles of wine and I would drink that. And I would drink it really fast. And on a bad night, I would get a bottle of vodka and I would have these little rules with myself. Like, I'm just going to have like three shots and then I would hide it in my cupboard and I'd put all of these obstacles in my way. So by the time I got to the bottle, something would have triggered me to, to, to not get it. And I would end up just drinking it anyway. So I was drinking to, to pass out. If I was still okay, then I would drink more. By this stage, the property settlement and custody negotiations had become really nasty 
lawyers were involved, and Claire's anxiety was through the roof. She stopped answering the phone, opening mail. Everything was falling apart. The noise in my head was so bad and the undealt with grief that I, I couldn't be quiet for a second. Sometimes I would try to just like binge watch TV to just do something else that wasn't drinking. But the minute the next episode would start to load, I would start panicking like, oh my God, oh my God, I will start thinking again. I just wasn't able to live in my skin anymore. I just want to jump in here and say something about Claire's girls. She utterly adores them and she's a beautiful mum. By now, the oldest had left home and her little one would stay with her on weekends. She'd stay sober when she had her. But alcohol abuse is an illness. Claire had tried to stop drinking so many times. She just couldn't get it to stick. And now she was drinking more than ever. Her rock bottoms were getting lower, harder. And so she tried yet again to stop. So what I did was I, I put myself into rehab but at my dad's house. So I said to him, can you be my prison warden? Can you keep an eye on me? And I started working three days a week. I was going to AA once a week and I was going to group therapy and I was thinking of psychologists. And then I'd get sad and eventually I would just pick up a drink again. I was waiting for him to go do his laps in the pool um, because I knew exactly how long that would take. There was a bottle shop just across the park from his house so I could sneak out and grab a bottle and sneak it back in and um, just drink it. And then I was sort of managing doing my treatment options and drinking at the same time. Sometimes he'd drop me off and I just wouldn't go because I knew I'd be drinking that afternoon and I just couldn't bear the lie of it, I guess. Yes, I, I set the rules. But alcoholics are very devious, so it would appear that she was abiding by all the rules and there was no alcohol, but uh, <laughs> there'd be bottles hidden under the bed, behind the cupboard, where, wherever, because she was trying so hard to impress me that she was doing the right thing, but she couldn't. You stay in this real place of shame, so we didn't really talk about it, yeah. And it was really hard for him. He started to have really bad anxiety and depression. He didn't know what to do. And he loves me so much. It was very, very hard for him to see me becoming so undone. By that stage, I, I was very depressed through a sense of failure of not being able to help my daughter, you know, who I loved. I was only living through my experience with Claire, that there was very little enjoyment left in my life. And so that was when I, I decided that I needed to do something about it. And so John started going to group therapy for friends and family of people with substance abuse issues. One of the things I've experienced is that there were some pretty hard lessons for me to learn around what, what they used to call enabling. I think they now call it removing the negatives. <laughs> but it's a really hard lesson to learn, mm. that one, about how to support someone with a problem. Well, 
it's particularly difficult as a parent because you're so used to helping your children. That was one of the, the things that I had to learn was that there was a limit to how much I could give without it impacting on the amount of money she then had to spend on, on alcohol. That was an important lesson to learn to be supportive but without enabling the addiction to go on and that you had to set rules, house rules, and say, okay, no alcohol in the house. If there's alcohol in the house, you're out. It's a hard one to actually live by. That's a, that's a really big ask. Yeah, I think that he made it easier for me to stay in that bubble because he loved me and he knew that I was already going through enough. So he wanted to offer me a space that, you know, I could feel loved in. And unfortunately, I, I, I feel like I took advantage of that in a way. I had a bit more freedom to, to just drink. It was easier with his generosity, yeah. For me, the overriding thing was love. You know, that if you love somebody, then you're prepared to give them another chance. You're prepared to do as much as you possibly can. But I had to draw the line to realise that I didn't have to solve everything. I could let go and let her do it. And then all of her sisters ganged up on her and, and said, Claire, you really need to go into rehab and that was the clincher. Anyone who knows someone who's had an alcohol abuse problem knows that the biggest obstacle is the person themselves. They have to want to stop. And Claire did, but she couldn't do it on her own. One of my sisters got an Airbnb and we all just stayed together and that's when we started rehab shopping. We went around, looked at all of the, the options and I needed to find a new path forward. I am going to have to trust the process and follow this path because following my own instincts hadn't worked. Claire's sisters took her to information sessions at a bunch of local rehab centres and then they found the one. When we got there, they have what they call peer support workers. So there's somebody who's been through the treatment themselves and are now on the other side. So there was a particular peer support worker working that day who was just fabulous. Like I felt really seen by this person. He was so eloquent and um, also really funny, like quite bogan and like swore a lot and <laughs> it was really funny. Can I mention his name? The name keeps on coming up all the time, Vaughan. So I'd said to him that day, oh my goodness, I want to do what you're doing. And he said, well, you, you will. And I was like, really? I don't see that in myself. I felt so broken and so far removed from being a support to anyone. But he saw that in me. And so did my sister. The day that I went to rehab, my dad drove me. I was apprehensive. I had to quit. You're not allowed to smoke in, in rehab. So I had feelings around that. And I made my dad pull over on the way and smoked half a cigarette and <laughs> put it out and then got back in the car. And I think for the first month that I was in there, I thought about that cigarette, <laughs> half a cigarette there. <laughs> The residential rehab that Claire went to was based on the popular therapeutic community model, 
We can't name it for privacy reasons, but it's a not-for-profit NGO that's been around for a long time. You had to follow this course of treatment. You know, to start off with, you had no contact with the outside world at all. So you have to be committed to be engaged. So you can't just sit in the corner and not participate. So you can't have um, close relationships with anybody. And non-disclosure of other people's breaking the rules is also a rule. So many rules. You've got to be clean. They do urine tests and breathalyzer tests every morning and every night. You can't leave. If you leave, then you don't come back. You can't have sugar. You can't bring food or anything like that in. You can't have your phone. With my little one who was was 10, I was able to um, call her once a week for the first three weeks for 10 minutes. That's it. So, you know, basically you feel stripped bare of the comforts that you are used to having. Inside rehab, Claire's world had shifted on its axis. But then the outside world started shifting too. Now across the world, the coronavirus has been dubbed the worst health crisis for a generation as 116 countries battle the pandemic. So when I went in, it was 2020, and I went in in um, March and COVID hit. And so unfortunately for me, I wasn't able to see anyone for 13 weeks because we went into lockdown. And also our population went from 32 down to 11 because people just didn't want to be there. So we sat through three months of just the 11 of us in this rambling big wow. rehab. And how did that go? <laughs> it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. It was really heart-wrenching to not be able to see my kids. It was excruciating. The people that were there, I didn't necessarily, you know, weren't necessarily on the same wavelength with me, but one person was, and we connected and it felt really nice to have a kindred spirit in there, but you're not allowed to have that. You're not allowed to have a close relationship with somebody because- well, how did they stop? How did they stop? They, they call it exclusive. So you get put on a therapeutic intervention. Yeah, and there's a whole big deal about it. We weren't allowed to talk to each other. You can't make eye contact. You can't sit next to each other. You're completely, it's the weirdest experience I've ever had really in my life, to be honest. Now, this isn't some woo-woo rehab centre. It's government funded, highly regarded, and there are solid therapeutic reasons behind this rule. The main thing is, is that it's not community as method to have besties. The therapeutic community model relies on community as method to facilitate change in individuals. How you are, how you behave, how you engage with the group, these all shine a light on your own behaviours. So for Claire and her blossoming friendship, the question was, why are you seeking comfort from your relationships with other people? What does that say about you? So we had to do a lot of work around codependency. And I didn't know that I was, but I really was. I couldn't actually see myself existing as a single person. I couldn't even fathom what that was. So I got it. But once I got over the outrage of it, I decided, yeah, actually, I have got codependent tendencies. So why not look at that? It sounds like it was like so intense. <laughs> it, was. it was like being on another planet. <laughs> but it was also like good intense. You learn the hard way how to trust yourself, how to relearn, how to trust your instinct, how to keep yourself in a good place, no matter what. Because life is life's hard, right? And so what do you do when you don't have anything else to fall back on? 
Incredibly, through all this, Claire managed to keep 50% custody of her little one, with the very hands-on support of her mum and dad. She'd stay with her grandparents for Claire's half of the week, and they'd bring her in for day visits. And after the first few months of rehab, Claire earned privileges, and she was allowed out on weekends to be with her girls. It was hard for everyone, but Claire's daughters knew their mum needed to do this. And all through this, her dad, John, kept going to his own group therapy. Essentially, there, there is no difference between the program that you have to do as an alcoholic and the program you have to do as a person who is dealing with an alcoholic. The, the biggest thing is knowing my limitations and not trying to, to help. It's really hard for me to relive that time because I feel I've dealt with that and I don't particularly want to feel as bad as I did then ever again. So that was the, the journey, <laughs> 18 months. Wow, that's, that's such a huge commitment. Claire spent nine months in residential rehab and then another nine months in transitional housing, a recovery home where she also had to follow strict rules. No drinking, having counselling, going to recovery meetings three times a week. Did you know it was going to be that long when you started? No, no, no idea. And I guess I feel really, really grateful for the fact that I didn't put a time limit on it because I saw so many people fail because they had given themselves a time that they were going to get better by. And I didn't do that to myself. I said, I'm going to follow this journey until I reach my goal of being a strong, financially secure, independent woman. That was the thing I was afraid of, right? That was the thing that took me out in the first place was my fear around independence. So Claire faced that fear head on and started rebuilding her life. Her divorce settlement finally went through. She rented her little flat by the sea. She has her daughters back. Then I was ready. I was able to find out like, what does Claire do when she lives on her own? You know, how do you wake up in the morning and have a day plan and get through that day sober and live out your life? But I know how to be sober every day. I know how to deal with my emotions. I know how to manage my anxiety. You know, I know how to parent better. And, you know, I know how to just be Claire, live in her best life. <laughs> have you crossed paths with Vaughan again? Yeah, I have. Yeah. So Vaughan started working at the rehab just before I left. So on my last day... I'd packed my bags, I was ready to go. And he called me into the office and he said, we're not supposed to do this, but... And he gave me a big hug and he said, I always knew you were going to make it. And part of living that best life? Following in Vaughan's footsteps as a peer support leader. It felt amazing to be able to, like, sit in the chair and look over and know I was one of those people. And it's like looking at them going, oh, honey, like, I know what that feels like because I was you. It was such a buzz. And I just thought, you know what, I think I'd be a really good counsellor. So she did it. Claire's now studying for her Diploma of Counselling and she volunteers at the rehab centre she went to. Recovery from substance abuse is terrifyingly hard. Often it's two steps forward, one step back. And recovery rates are confrontingly low. 
I say this purely to shine a light on Claire's success. Three years clean and sober. <laughs> yeah. What's the date? It's March the 4th, marching 4th, I call it, the 4th of March. <laughs> it's great. I'm so lucky I got that date. It's really, it sounds really powerful, right? Um, and that's it for me. Like, I'd like to experience what it's like to be 10 years sober, 20 years sober. I just, I've never been happier in my life. I don't miss it at all. Not at all. I wouldn't look back. Is there anything else you want to say? Um, yeah, follow me. <laughs> if I can do it, you can do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy, but it's worth it. <laughs> Follow Me Out of Oblivion was produced by Kirsty Melville on Wadjuk and Kukaja Country. The sound engineer was David LeMay. And if you need help with substance abuse or know someone who does, then reach out to the Alcohol and Drug Support Line on 1800 198 024. We'll also put that number on the Earshot website. I'm Miyuki Akiranta. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. If you love Earshot and you love stories, you should check out Days Like These with Farza Draki. It's all about the days that go perfectly right and the ones that go spectacularly wrong. You'll meet all kinds of people, a guy trying to reclaim his city, a woman in a cult, and a serious journalist meeting her rock and roll idol. Then there's the man who can't shake off his dog suit, Find days like these in the ABC Listen app for stories about the day where everything changes. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.